Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So welcome back to Accelerating Careers in Real Estate. I'm your host, Nick Carman. And before I introduce our next guest, I just wanted to encourage everybody listening, if there's a question you have for our guests, if there's a question you think, why didn't he ask me that? Then send it in, LinkedIn, WhatsApp, voice notes, and they will feature in the forthcoming shows. So this evening, I'm joined by Paul Clark, head of European property for Australian Super. Australian Super manages £125 billion worth of assets and has been prolific in investments in the UK development scene most recently with related Argent's King's Cross, British Land's Canada Water. And prior to joining Australian Super, Paul was the chief investment officer of the Crown Estate and held the reins for the £8.5 billion portfolio for the church commissioners. So, Paul, thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Well, let's get started, shall we? Given all those numbers and those impressive employees, we've got a lot to talk about. So tell us where Chapter 1 begins. Well, shall we call it a preface to start off with? <laughs> you get us going. I'll just explain briefly how I drifted into real estate because when I was 18, I wanted nothing more in life than to go to university and study history because that's basically all I was interested in. And I was the first person from my family to to go to university and for me the whole purpose of that was just purely educational in all all respects academic and otherwise and it was only towards the end of that three-year undergraduate degree that I realized I might actually have to go into some sort of useful employment in the years ahead and as it happens I chose Reading randomly as my university to study history and of course the land management faculty there loomed large on campus and I had quite a few friends who were on the undergraduate course and I thought well there's a job that's not accounting or um, retail which seemed to be the two favoured destinations for historians in, in those days and it would get me out of the house a bit so I went on what was then called the MPhil in land management nowadays it's the MSc and it's a one-year course then it was two and I did that, realised actually what it was I was getting into by that point. And from there, once I graduated, my working life started. And what did you make of those early days? Um, well, I suppose first, I'd never been inside a professional office before. I didn't come from that sort of background. I sort of got used to meeting middle class people by then because I'd been at university for three years. But when I took my first role and you know we'll get onto that shortly one of the um, one of the things I realized is it wasn't just about being smart and writing a good essay that actually there were broader ways that you needed to behave how you needed to express yourself that would also be part of your career journey well don't leave us hanging there tell us tell us a little bit more well my Handy. My, my first-hand experience of the, of the sector, really, was, was being interviewed for, for jobs. And in the end, I went to what is today called M&G, but in those days was Prudential Portfolio Managers. And I thought I was going because they, they paid the most and I needed the money. But actually, subsequently, what you, know, what you realise is that they never asked me who my father was. 
or whether I liked rugby, which all the all the agencies did because they were still in their sort of um, old school tie phase. And then the answers to those two questions were none of your business. You're not hiring my dad. And no, I prefer football. But you begin you begin to see that probably you don't. You know, it, it doesn't help to be quite that direct with people, and uh, you, you you've got to find some ways of um, just moulding off the edges. Well. I- the, the listeners will be used to this point. You know, I, I asked this this question over and over again about sort of, you know, what were you learning about about the that time or, or that that chapter. And so, tell us more. You know, what's what was happening there in terms of that that early sort of foundation for this career? Well, my first two jobs were, as I've said, with M and G, and then subsequently with what was then known as Devon and Chusen and Chinnix, became DTZ and is now part of Cushman and Wakefield, and that took up with a, with a little interlude to um, travel in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, that, that, that took up about 13 years of my career. Did you get to like rugby? You know, I've tried. Really, I have. And it has many admirable qualities, but it's not the same as Selhurst Park on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> okay. So it didn't, they didn't rub off on you then too much? Not a lot, to be honest with you. But I, I think what was really useful about that phase of my career is that I really learned how to be a professional in real estate. It was still the day of the general practice surveyor. And for example, at that point, the Prudential did almost everything in-house, whether it was management or rent reviews or even buying and selling real estate. We did so much in-house and we had departments for each of, of those functions. And consequently, you could get a really thorough background and grounding in in real estate. And it was the same when I went to DTZ that, you know, I was a GP asset manager, really. And so I could concern myself from everything from how the bins got emptied to whether or not we were re-gearing a head lease or, you know, buying in an, buying in an interest of something, of something and everything in between. And it also focused on the, on the sort of preparation and thoroughness and attention to detail you required to be a really good professional. And early in my time at um, DTZ, I had a, a boss who, whenever he was taking taking you into a meeting, would look at you up and down and say, right, jacket, tie, something to write with, something to write on, file. And there was that idea that proper preparation for everything you did. Now, you know, I, I don't always dress as, as well as I did in those days. And I do think of that when I go into a meeting now, perhaps ready to punch something into my iPad and not wearing a suit, but the the principle of it never leaves you. So how long do you spend DTZ? Um, well, I was there for nearly 10 years. And okay. during that time, the, the business changed a lot from a, it only just become, it was listed in those days. It only just become a listed business and still had the, um, the architecture of a partnership, really. The original you know, partners who had grown the business were still around and were still sort of structured like that and it went through mergers became dtz started to become global and as it did that you got to the point where you couldn't fit all of the um the directors and associates names on the bottom of the letter heading anymore became more corporate and i began to think that i didn't really want my boss's job and i didn't want my boss's boss's job and edging yourself up the corporate ladder 
was fine in a way, but you, I had, I felt at that point, exhausted the sort of general professional learning that was available to me at, at DTZ, that one way of getting on in a business like that is to offer to go abroad or to start something up or do, do something different in that, that respect. But I sort of looked around and it seemed to me that I would gain more at that point by going into smaller edgier businesses for a while and trying to use that approach to make a bit of a jump in my career from sort of a solid mid-level professional, well-regarded, I think, with my colleagues and the clients I was working for, but nothing nothing particularly spectacular. And I wanted to see if I could thrive in different sorts of environments so my next move after that was to go to a property company called Hemingway, which I guess most of your listeners will never have heard of. It was listed at the point I went. This would have been around about 1999. And it was in the region, I suppose, three to four hundred million pounds, mid-sized property company in those days, about 25 people, and had a reputation for being very commercially astute and quite aggressive in the way it did business. Soon after I arrived, got taken private in one of the first public to privates. That happened at that period by three large institutions. And that was the point I felt I really began to work out how you actually made money out of real estate. I knew how to manage it and how to do a rent review and and, an IRR, but actually you start to see the relatively few things that really affect your outturns, whether it's timing or the sort of debt you want. Out of interest, Paul, what, what do you think was missing from the textbooks of the, of the usual sort of GP practice, do you think, that, you know, that meant you hadn't, that hadn't fallen into place earlier? Um, in a way, it's not your own money, I suppose. It's always somebody else's. And you get pieces of the picture, but you don't see the whole piece necessarily. And I think it's just a bluntness. It's, you know, it was an environment where things were explained to exactly how they were. And there weren't that many people that you didn't know what everybody did. And there was no hiding place. If somebody wasn't performing to the, re- the required level in, with 25 people and a really clear commercial outlook, that became apparent very quickly. So it was more, I'd say, property in the raw than I've been using. It certainly wasn't institutional, and neither was the the quality of the stock. Uh, uh, in some cases, you know, they're bought very well in the West End, but the smallest deal I've ever done, I think, was I sold a f- for £50,000 an end-of-unit shop in a suburb of Worksop, which, for those that don't know, is in the East Midlands, to the local constabulary who are using, going to use it as, a, as, a, as, a, as an outpost for their operations. And that was the sort of thing that was getting picked up in that, as we were acquiring businesses, you know, the good, the bad, and the, and, and, and the indifferent. And you, you, saw, you, know, you saw how you had to deal with particularly difficult pieces of real estate. Because when you acquire a company, you often don't do the due diligence at property level. And how you sort out issues that allow you to move on the stuff you don't want to effectively asset management approve, develop, 
the the kit that you do and you're accountable week in week out personally you mentioned it being sort of out of sorts or a little bit sort of cynical about if you'd stayed another 10 years in in that sort of gp practice mm. you know where would you've been is life happier now in a, in this smaller principal end i'd i'd say it was more volatile so larger practice was more like a mill pond you know there was there were there were some ripples but think life went up and down within relatively narrow parameters it was way more volatile you had fantastic days and you had terrible days and did the 30 year old uh, paul clark enjoy this he enjoyed the good days enjoyed the terrible days less <laughs> to be honest but it was never I, I never felt it would be a long-term home and I wanted to get what I needed to get out of it and move move on, which I did to another smaller business, which um, well was a part of something called ISG, which I think is still around and is a um, sort of fit out construction group. But mm-hmm. at that point, had decided that it wanted to be involved in the full life cycle of real estate and had bought a handful of real estate advisory businesses, it with varying levels of profitability the largest and most established of which some of you more geriatric listeners will remember, and that was um, Walker Sun and Pacman, and was trying to merge these into a single entity. And I went there because it gave me two things. It gave me P&L responsibility and a place on the operations board. And it also meant that there were a lot of people working for me, dozens of people working for me. I was responsible for a whole range of commercial property departments from investment through to building surveying and management and professional. And that gave me a chance to broaden out my my corporate leadership experience, take responsibility for a part of the balance sheet. And these businesses hadn't been really stuck together terribly well and did need sort of dismantling and putting back together again. And I was working with a group of people, all of whom are older and more experienced than I was at the sort of senior leadership end, because I was still in my 30s at this point. And one of the, the lessons I learned, and probably the biggest lesson I learned, was when I, when I went there, I was really sort of, what do you want me to do? What's my job here? And once you've got your name on the door and you're clearly accountable for something, I think the best thing you can do, I learned, at least over the first few months there, was worry less about what people want you to do and trying to fit that with what you thought needed doing, but set out really clearly your vision of what you felt ought to be done and what you wanted to do, and be very consistent in your messaging about how you were going to set about affecting that change, and then you're accountable for the outcomes, because to be honest, you're accountable for the outcomes anyway, so you might as well be accountable for having done the things you thought ought to have been done than the things you felt other people wanted you to do. And that was a, a really another really important lesson which I took from that phase of my career and something I've always subsequently tried to apply. And, and it was sort of a job as well that I, re, I regret in some respects leaving when I, I did because I, I was only there a couple of years or so. And... At that point, along came a recruitment consultancy you may have heard of. What were their names? McDonald and Co., that's it. The only one. Yeah, and I'd use your firm from, from almost, funnily enough, its its inception, 
to to recruit and they knew me quite well and one of your leading consultants said uh, there's this job at the church commissioners called chief surveyor which in effect means you're responsible for running the property investment portfolio of the original church pension scheme and she said why don't you have a go at this i think you'd be good for it and i said well i don't think so because i know a bit about them and i know who works for them and it's going to go to some investment professional from Clutton's who they're very close to. You know, I might well get to a shortlist, but I just don't think that I'm their sort of person, particularly given that they're also, you know, a properly establishment business. And she said, no, no, they want somebody like you with your broader experience. Have a go. And so I did. And it turns out I got the job, and that was a big inflection point for me. And again, I don't, it was only when I went, into the, particularly I think the final interview, that I sort of realised why I might be a good fit for it and why I might get the job. And it sort of set the the pattern as well for the subsequent 20 plus years of my career because firstly, since then, I've always worked for values-led businesses with a clear sense of purpose. And those have also been are still are businesses that are able to take a long-term view and contain an awful lot of people that could probably earn more somewhere else and have a much broader intellectual hinterland than you'd often find in pure real estate or investment businesses. And in a way, I sort of found my, my natural home, somewhere where you can be a little bit different. You can be an outlier. You can be thoughtful about the way that you want to do things. And looking back to the early part of my career, when you're 28 and you're perhaps not wearing quite the right suit and you're not saying the right things all the time, you're just considered a little bit of an outlier, perhaps you're truculent and not always always that easy to manage. 20 years later, they ask you to go on panels as an original thinker. (laughs) Time, Time solves so many things and changes people's perceptions. And I think to some extent I've matured into the sort to working into the sort of businesses that fit me and perhaps in a way that's how all of our careers in the end go we do tend i think on reflection to get the jobs we ought to get so paul we mentioned this is this is going to be now the next sort of two two decades but starting right at the beginning you know what was the first challenge what was the first big challenge for you at church commissioners well Nick, I think the two really, to be honest with you, first was how to operate in a multi-sector investment business. You know, so with public and private equities and with fixed interest as well as real estate, for example, what the role of real estate within that business was. <clears throat> and also how to to help the church commissioners who had been through quite a traumatic period in the early 90s where they'd um, nearly gone out of business and had been in recovery mode since then, how we could begin to take more risk in the portfolio again in a measured way and move it on to the next stage of its development. And alongside that, and particularly associated with what I've just said, is I now had to get used to working in a business which was sort of public property. What it did was of interest to some quite serious stakeholders and to the media. And you couldn't just do what you wanted to do and get on with it. You had to have a properly prepared public 
position to explain what you were doing. And just to give that some context, church commissioners report to General Synod, which is the church's parliament. And there's also a church question time in parliament, the House of Commons. I think it's monthly from from recollection. And the second church commissioner is always an MP of the governing party. So what you're doing is public property. And bringing that back then to the investment side of the of the business, we had a very solid defensive portfolio, which was performing well. But we were going, this is now in the early 2000s, so we were going to a period where you, you're going to have to add some alpha to that to continue to get that same level of performance and do it in a, in a measured way. And so we, we began to take a little bit of development risk again, um, particularly in industrial. We began to reglobalize the portfolio through funds, concentrating on areas like residential, for example, and some emerging markets. We had a, a, a pretty successful investment in Central and Eastern Europe at that point. And in order to do that, we had to also rotate the portfolio a bit. And some, some of the activities we were still undertaking that perhaps had run their course, we, we had to stop. And, and perhaps the, the most publicised of, of those changes were that we made a decision to sell what was called the Octavia Hill housing estates and had been in church ownership for a very long time. They technically weren't social housing, but looked a bit like it from the outside. And the process that we went through to sell those estates and to try and sell them in a a measured and sensible way, but absolutely essential for moving on the portfolio, was my first really big encounter with the media and being involved in interviews on BBC Radio, live interviews on BBC TV, giving... Um, press interviews, and actually not just handling a successful investment transaction, which we did. And in fact, we we, we sold those to a, a joint venture between Granger and Genesis, as it was then, Housing Association. We actually had to handle the public face of that, and I ended up becoming the public face of the transaction for the media. And that was a, that was a steep learning curve, I think in some respects it suited me, suited me because I'm really interested in broader small P and big P political issues and macroeconomic social issues. And it sort of fitted my interest. And I, was, I, I found that I was that nobody loves being interviewed on television. I think 20 seconds before they start the cameras rolling, you'd rather be anywhere else on the planet. And then 20 seconds after it's finished, you feel... As long as it's gone okay, you feel pretty good about yourself. But again, something, going back to what I said earlier about my DTZ days, you really learn the value of proper preparation for big projects. And over the four years or so that that I was there, it it always was a high-performing portfolio. But for for, for three years, my last year and a couple of years after that, it was the best-performing portfolio in its class as measured by IPD. And 
you know, there was a, a strong element of that, which was a, about the, the changes we made in the portfolio, where we were able to stop doing some things that we perhaps weren't that good at or, or weren't fit for the future, to take some more measured risk. And I think what what began to get me interested in the next job I did was that the church commissions also own something called the Hyde Park portfolio, which has sort of been treated in more recent times as a way of extracting capital profits by selling off elements of it. And I looked at it and thought, well, hang on, there's an estate here. And particularly the core of it should be managed holistically as an estate. And there's a way to generate return, which is more than the sum of the parts, by improving an area. And we started to be investors in that location around Connell Square. And that, again, I think was a, a, a really interesting part of my career development, I started to see the benefit of contiguously owned estates and placemaking, regeneration, and the long-term benefits you could offer locations for that, but also the financial benefits of what you might call a regeneration premium as you, as you improved locations. So, Paul, you've spoken very passionately and clearly very successfully um, uh, those years at Church Commissioners. So it begs the question then, because we know what's coming, we know there's a transition coming then to, to Crown Estate. You know, what was it that meant that you were happy to be uprooted from Church Commissioners to Crown Estate? And Nick, I was really happy at the, the Church Commissioners. I was having the time of my life there. Thoroughly enjoyed being in that organisation. And somebody had said to me over lunch, after three years or so, oh, the next job for you will be the Crown Estate. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe not. And then not that long after, yeah, I did get a call about a job at the Crown Estate, which was, I think the title was something like Director of Investment and Asset Management, which became, in effect, a proxy CIO and then the, the actual CIO. And it, it really fitted my parameters for the sort of organization I wanted to work in. It, it ticked the box in terms of being a values-led organization with a clear sense of purpose and having the right sort of people in it for, for me to work with. And I had a lot of time for the chief executive at that point, who was Roger Bright. I really liked him. And it seemed too good an opportunity to turn down because the scale of the real estate operation at the Crown Estate that much larger. And I felt a real opportunity to help that business focus itself on what it could be really good at and to take it into it, the next phase of its development. So it wasn't, wasn't an easy decision, but it felt like the right one. And subsequently, I've no doubt that it was a really good call to go there. And, and I stayed 13 years, had a, had a great time and felt I was part of something really very transitional. For that business, I got a bit of grounding in what it meant to work in a business with a high public profile. However, what I hadn't experienced before was working in a business that, for example, was subject to the Freedom of Information Act, which is another level of public scrutiny that it's hard to prepare yourself for. But you get used to working in that sort of environment. And there was such a great footprint for the business already that it was something I really wanted to, to be involved with so I, I did join and that was in 2007 
And it was already beginning to change. Roger was already taking that business forward. And so the beginnings of the transformation of Regent Street from what it had been in, in the 90s and, and early 2000s, which was largely sort of tartan and travel agents, had already begun under a guy called David Shaw, who was a tremendously energetic and visionary head for Regent Street. And I was lucky enough that you know, he, he worked for me. And you really, 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 really do want to make sure that the people who work for you are smart. And the bigger the job you have, the less real work you'll end up doing. You'll start to make bigger and bigger decisions on actually less and less first-hand information. And you had better make sure that the people who are working for you are first rate. And one of the things I'm really proud of at that over that time was the quality of the team we built up. I felt my job was to work out what the Crown Estate could be really good at because it was it was still doing a range of things. And I think it's a pretty good rule of thumb in real estate investing that you should do as few things as possible as well as you can in order to take advantage of the characteristics of the market because they are imperfect. It doesn't matter who you know. You can get an advantage by having a level of depth of expertise in a particular sector or geography. And we ended up focusing really, in terms of our investment, on three things. On our central London portfolio of Regent Street and St. James's, and with the latter, we weren't wholly sure what to do with St. James's at that point. Regent Street was beginning to fly, but we were still selling the odd freehold in St. James's to fund it. So that hadn't really found its way in the world. It was also the very early days, still almost the conceptual days of the offshore wind expansion, which is now very big news. But plainly, that was something else we were going to focus on as a a great chance for the, the Crown State to do something that was materially useful for the, the country and the planet and the right thing for the business. And then we also focused our regional portfolio. And that was principally on large retail schemes, but retail parks principally rather than shopping centres. And then later on began to move towards distribution. Well, if I can just interrupt then, put, um, we like to do a bit of research um, for anyone mm. coming on. And I got to speak to a couple of people who knew you quite well. And I wanted to ask your thoughts on this because we asked both of these contacts as to, you know, what does Paul do really well? And this is what one of them said. Paul is very good at considering the subject matter, devising a strategy and implementing it. And to our contact, you know, he summed this up and saying, many can do one very well, but few can do nose to tail. And to know that you know this is this is obviously a key strength strength of yours, and given what you've just summed up there in terms of the time with with Crown, stands the reason I might as well ask you how do you do all three of those well, and what you know what can our our audience learn from that? Well, first, that's very kind of whoever said it. Secondly, I'll, I'll try and do justice to what <laughs> what he's just suggested. Um, it is a good question, and I have thought about this. And I think I'm quite good at chunking things up. So I only have to address the, the question in front of me. And then once you've decided what the, the answer to the first question is, that will throw up second and third questions. And whilst it's really important to have, you must never lose sight 
of what your ultimate aim is. So you'll have a general strategy that says, we want to be X or a vision or a purpose or whatever it is you want to call that. But then you start, you know, you'll ask yourself that you, you ask yourself the first question in terms of your strategy, and that will beg some other questions and some other questions. And you just have to gradually, it's a process of eliminating the alternatives you don't like, focusing on the ones you do, being really consistent. And also, I think, being really clear with people. If you say something one day, then I think it's beholden upon you to say the same thing the next day and a week later and a month later. And the only time that should alter, to, to quote John Maynard Keynes, is if the facts change, you can change your opinion and you should change your opinion. And people who don't, I think, are misguided. But otherwise, you should be very consistent in what you're focusing on. Keep that discipline. And just gradually chunk it up. And you learn how to take big issues through boards and committees as well that way. That you set out the nature of the problem, you set out what you're trying to achieve, and you tell them what the first step is. And then you come back. And you may well know exactly what it is you want to do. You come back and you say, well, we've eliminated X and Y. You know, we think Z is looks good. And they say, well, go on, carry on, look at that. And then you start to carve up that option into how you're going to set about it. And it's just, it's consistency. And I think it's just discipline and rigor. Nothing very, very exciting. It's true, I believe, that success is, is 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. So I don't know that there is any great blinding insight other than just being disciplined. Oh, I disagree. I disagree. I, thought, I, I think that's a really interesting set of lessons, Paul. Um, we inevitably, we've got 13 years of the Crown Estate and an incredibly uh, successful and an important role in, in, the, in the wider scheme of sort of real estate. So let me ask you one question in terms of to, to try and sort of chunk this up, is that what was the most enjoyable phase of that 13 years for you? I think it was the transition of the business model, really, because you can have a strategy which which we did to focus increasingly on the things we felt were going to be the most productive for us and we could do the, the best at. And we had an approach in terms of the teams and, and the people we, we wanted to develop. But we didn't really have a business model in that the Crown Estate doesn't have fresh sources of capital and can't borrow on balance sheet. It had borrowed in a vehicle, but that's sort of politically difficult when when you're dealing with the the treasury so we really had to think about how do we fund the transformation we want to make and we decided that there were really two ways we had to recycle capital through the business at a much higher velocity than we had previously and that meant in some years we were up to a billion pounds of buying selling and developing expenditure but we, we we had to keep the wheel turning reasonably quickly and the other thing which was yeah, I found really enjoyable. We had to use a combination of our own money and other people's money to grow and develop the business. And that led to very successful joint ventures, particularly in central London, with the Norwegians on, on Regent Street, which caused a, a big splash at the time, and with two Canadian pension schemes on developments in St. James's, Hoop and Oxford Properties. And the the intellectual effort around establishing that model and the sort of quasi-marketing piece 
of actually selling the Crown Estate as a manager of other people's money, which nobody had ever really thought they could do before. And then organising the team and the reporting and setting up those joint ventures and then subsequently running them was really exciting time, which I look back on with a great deal of fondness. And I remember the first trip. I used to go to Canada quite regularly for, for 10 years. And I sort of decided that Canadian money was good money for us. It was long term. It was culturally aligned. And there was increasingly quite a lot of it. So I should go out. And I, I went out there. With, with the help of a, a guy called Peter Sense, who um, very senior at CBRE in Toronto, who didn't know me from Adam, was passed on by the the London team and um, built up a, a strong friendship with, took me around the the various large Canadian pension schemes. And I had my little presentation there. And actually building those relationships, developing the profile of the Crown State in a jurisdiction where people sort of, the Canadians, are, I think, are generally very well disposed towards their links with the, the UK, so everybody would open the door for you. But you had to have something useful to say when you got in there. Otherwise, it would be quite a short meeting and perhaps only one meeting. And that exercise I found really invigorating, thoroughly enjoyed. And I look back on what we achieved there with a great deal of pride. And to give it a bit of context as well, one of our one of our contexts described particularly the the deal with the Norwegian uh, Wealth Fund on Regent Street as being the most unique and creative transaction done in UK real estate? Well, a, a, a small note of pedantry first. Something's unique or it isn't. It's an absolute. <laughs> so let's, let's decide it's unique. <laughs> <laughs> You're on. Um, we had a couple of goes at it. And, and the person who said that knows because they were – you know, quite influential in helping to establish the way we, we did this. And, and, and that person should also take some of the credit for where we washed up. We thought about a fund, for example, and a sort of fund management subsidiary of the Crown Estate and having several investors into Regent Street. And there were some enthusiasts for that in the business. But that, that was about the time of the GFC. That was sort of 2008-ish, 2009 and the fun, you know, fun world was changing and what large investors wanted was changing. They were moving away from funds to more direct investments. And that that didn't happen. We got a fair way thinking about how we would do that and setting up. And that didn't happen. And we had to go away and have a brainstorming session on the options for, for it. And there were also within that constitutional restrictions that the crown estate has can't certain things it can't do has to be a a reasonably direct route into real estate investing can't be too esoteric in the way it approaches it and we decided on the one investor route we decided we didn't need any of the clutter of structures and financialization and we went to a a layered leasehold approach which was sort of seen earlier we'd done something like that except we'd been at the lease over on the freehold end um, when we'd set up our joint venture with Land Securities in Exeter on the shopping centre there, and the freeholders were the local council. So we, the, the structure for that transaction was Crown Estate freehold, a 150-year lease to the Norwegians for their 30, the right to receive 30% of the, of the income from Regent Street, and then a, 
at least back to the the crown estate for 150 years minus a few days that then put us in control of the the asset management so there was no vehicle there was no board for anyone to sit on no limited partnership and there were some there were some other vehicles in between those leasehold interests whose sole job was to siphon money around between the partners but that was a very clear crisp arrangement and i think it, one of the reasons it worked was because both parties were so well aligned culturally and you can do what you want about clever financialization and commercial aspects of the deal if you don't have cultural alignment then you're at some point you're going to be stumped you're going to reach an impasse and that was the number one factor i think in making this whole thing work because arguably the the, the norwegian um sovereign wealth fund to you know which it isn't quite but to call it that is arguably even longer term than the crown so you've got two very very long-term businesses that could align themselves around this very simple structure that was was flexible but also contained the investment quite nicely so paul again using sort of history as our lead here we know there is a change of foot we know we're about to embark then on a change from uh, your role as a cio with the crown um, estate to head of European property for Australian Super, but it begs the question, what was the catalyst? Well, you know, Nick, sometimes you don't realise quite how tired you are. I'd done 13 years in a, in a high-profile and demanding role. We were we, we just had a, another change of chief executive, so my, my third, a very talented guy who I have a lot of respect for and is taking the, has taken the business on to the next level since he's been there but I sort of felt that in a way my race was run at the Crown Estate that I'd been through the period of change that I was well suited for and I think you only you only realize how tired you are when you take a rest and inadvertently because as I went on gardening leaf at the Crown Estate Covid started I was forced to take a break for a few months I had about six or eight months off which I was really grateful for and a chance to recharge the batteries and to consider what I wanted to do next. And it was a given that my sort of parameters around businesses that have a clear sense of purpose and a values led was going to be what I wanted to, to do next. And I, funnily enough, I knew Australian Super previously because when we were setting up our joint ventures, they were the one of the people we had spoken to about a joint venture a few years earlier. I'd been down to Melbourne a couple of times to see them. I knew the guy, Bevan Towning, who was running Global Property, and he got in touch with me quite soon after I announced I was leaving the Crown Estate. And again, I think you quite often end up in the jobs you ought to end up with, that the businesses that you're well suited to. And again, Australian Super, which is in effect a, a mutual we're not paying dividends to third-party shareholders. We, we take members' money in, and more than one in ten Australians save with us. We spend as little of it as possible on the way through and then return all of our profits to members. We're you know, a four-members profit organisation, and that clarity, simplicity of um, purpose suited me down to the ground, along, along with the growth trajectory of the business. It's... billion Australian last count and growing quite quickly because partly because of the compulsory nature of the savings regime in Australia and also partly because of the the average age of an Australian super member being a little over 40. So it'll be some time before we're 
paying out significantly. So a great opportunity to be part of the setup of Australian Super and the growth of the international globalisation um, side of the business. I think I was something like number 28 into the London office during COVID. And we're now more or less 90 in London. We also have a New York office that has opened since then as well. And around the time I joined, if you'd spoken to me, you'd have had the pleasure of addressing the entire real estate investment team for Australian Super. And that that gave a great deal of, of clarity, I think, to our sense of purpose. And we're now eight, and we've, as you've mentioned before, we've made our um, commitment to, to Canada Water as, con- as well as continue to develop out and increase our position in, in King's Cross. And being part of the development of the business outside of Australia has been um, a great pleasure over the last, going on for three years now. For someone who's tackled so many problems, so many real estate sort of challenges, what was left? What were you looking forward to when you when you joined Australian Super? I'd never worked for a non-UK business. Even when I'd been global at the Church Commissioners, it was still a business rooted in the UK. I'd never worked for a business whose origins were in another jurisdiction. And with actually the cultural challenges, I think, with Australians are not, not too big. They're more like us and they would care to, to admit. <laughs> but being part of a, of a, of a multi-jurisdictional global business and being part of an, an office that's really international. So obviously there are a lot of Brits and quite a few Australians, but we've got lots of other nationalities in there as as well. And if you're like me and you're really interested, say, in world cinema, and, and particularly perhaps French and Italian cinema, you've got colleagues you can talk to about it as well. So it's a, a great, again, back to a, a multidisciplinary business, all asset classes involved, and you have to make the case for real estate within that. A growth trajectory that gives you some some headroom and also the chance to work within a you know, a different culture again and that challenge of working with a business where most of the employees are somewhere between nine and 11 hours away depending on the time of year so a lot to learn again Right, Paul. I've got to, um, I'm going to hand over the questioning responsibilities now to uh, Rebecca, who, se- who sent in uh, the, fo- the following question to you. Let me know how you, uh, what you think of this, will you? Hi, I'm Rebecca, and I wanted to ask today's guest, how do you approach leadership and team management in the real estate sector? Um, can you share any strategies for fostering a successful and cohesive team environment? Well, that's a really good question. And I suppose in response, I'd say two things, one personal, one professional. On a personal level, be authentic, be yourself, and be interested in people. And perhaps that's not always easy, but you really, I think you really have to be interested in the people you work with. And you need to be authentic about who you are Whilst I'd say the one thing I really did learn at the Crown Estate when I had a very big team working for me was you sort of forget as you gradually become more senior in your career, the effect your behaviours have on other people. And you need, people look to you for the way to behave. And so make sure that you do offer the best of yourself. That, and what some of my rules are to 
always be on time for for meetings, whoever they're with. You know, it doesn't matter whether who you're meeting. Always be on time. Always be engaged with the people you're talking to. Ask lots of questions, and generally be aware of your impact on others. That's as you get more senior. That's such an important thing, and then you get the chance to build trust because. There, there's no such thing as a good team without high levels of trust and honesty. And I've seen both. And, you know, trust and honesty works best. Doesn't mean that you're unvarnished in the way you explain things to people. You have to choose your words carefully, but you must say what you really believe. And then on the professional side, you've got to be really clear what your strategy is, what your purpose is, what you're trying to achieve. Because otherwise, how do you know what sort of people you really need and then give everybody clarity and transparency and accountability and beyond that keep your fingers crossed uh, well that is i think that's brilliant advice paul um so thank you very much for answering rebecca's question thank you very much for putting up with me um uh, for the duration of the, uh, this pod as well uh, and on behalf of all our, our audience thank you for so much for sharing such an incredible story Nick, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it.